Hello, everyone, and welcome to the eighth episode of the Stuyvesant Perspective. I'm your co-host, Maya Nelson, Opinions Editor for The Spectator. And I'm the other host, Aaron Visser. Um, and today we have a very special guest. We're speaking to a representative from the university, a student at the University of Chicago. Jonah, why don't you introduce yourself? Yeah, uh, I'm Jonah. Uh, I'm a junior at the University of Chicago. I'm studying computer science. Um, uh, and I started an organization called the Jewish Movement for Uyghur Freedom around a year ago. Um, and basically what our organization does is we try to raise awareness within uh, the Jewish community, but also sort of, you know, throughout civil society in the US and a little bit in the UK and Canada uh, about the ongoing, you know, a lot of people call it a genocide, um, a lot of people call it ethnic cleansing, whatever you want to call it, uh, of the Uyghurs in Xinjiang, which is uh, the sort of Western most province in China. And yeah, that's who I am. That's what I do. Um, so for people who aren't too familiar, could you explain the genocide that is going on against Uyghurs and, you know, what exactly is going on in China? Yeah, sure. So um, Uyghurs are um, mostly Muslim, but not all Muslim. And they're, you know, in the, throughout, in China, if you're like, you know, weighing population as a whole, they're an ethnic minority. Um, there's around 14 million Uyghurs um, in China in total, but in the region where they live, they're not such a minority. Um, but um, basically, you know, China has a whole history of, you know, religious repression. Um, but, um, you know, starting in around 2009, there was um, uh, a series of high profile, you know, terrorist attacks that were committed by some Uyghurs um, in the region. And sort of China took it as an opportunity, I guess, or the Chinese government took it as an opportunity to sort of begin to crack down um, on religious life um, and cultural life in this sort of this region of Chinese um, called Xinjiang. And they started, you know, separating children from their parents and stopping them from going to their own schools, destroying mosques, um, forbidding Muslim religious practice and stuff like that. Um, and that was sort of escalating for a few years. And then um, in um, 2012, um, Xi Jinping became uh, the came in charge of China. Um, and sort of he, along with a lot of changes he's made to the country, um, and has made the country a lot more Stalinist um, in a way, and sort of much more oppressive. Um, he put a new person in charge of the region named Chen Guangzhou. Um, and he sort of began what um, has, I guess they're called, I guess people call them different things, but he started instituted concentration camps um, where it's estimated that around a million Uyghurs are currently um, there um, and sort of started this regime of mass sterilization of women, um, separation, like furthering separation of children from their families, um, forced labor, um, sending Uyghurs throughout China to do forced labor, but also sort of locally um, in camps. So some of these camps are just, you know, concentration camps, some of them are re-education camps, and some of them are forced labor camps. So it's a sort of a complex mix of things. Um, but that's the basic story. And, and the motivation, um, you know, expressively from the Chinese government is, is, you know, fighting terrorism, but there's been, you know, a few terrorist attacks. Um, all basically unconnected. And that's not really ever a justification to put a million people in concentration camps. So yeah, I'd say that's a basic story to, at a very high level. Um, and you know, the West has sort of learned a lot more about it um, in recent years because of some really great reporting, um, some leaks of um, classified documents from the Chinese government, and then also some like actual reporting um, on the ground. Um, and this is becoming more and more in the news um, as you know, the US government sort of recognized it as genocide the UK recognized it as a genocide. Other countries are sort of following suit. Um, and it's going to become an even more prominent topic, just, you know, America and China, geopolitical 
rivals. Um, and also sort of the Olympics is something that I think is on people's minds a lot um, as sort of a, a high profile event that you know the US is going to engage in within China um, and sort of reckoning with what does it mean to sort of participate in, in Olympic games in a country that is sort of committing such serious human rights abuses. So that's, that's sort of things on a high level and you know, yeah, so there are a lot of like critics, particularly people within China or people who have some loyalty to the CCP that will quibble with a lot of um, the reporting and the information about Xinjiang and the Uyghur genocide. And they'll point to the fact that, you know, um, a lot of these, there's very scant evidence due to lack of, you know, good information, good keeping by the Chinese um, and preventing information from getting out. And also talk, call it like politically motivated by the U.S. as, you know, way to attack China and call it offensive to the 1.4 billion Chinese people. So what do you say to people who talk like that, who kind of equate criticism with China as criticism of the Chinese people writ large? Um, and is it, are you just talking about the CCP here or like, like what exactly is the scope of this problem? Yeah, I mean, it's really a government problem and it really has very little to do with the Chinese people um, in my mind. Um, I mean, it's not, I would say that it's not just, you know, like a centralized government problem. It's also a local government problem. So China has a very sort of, I'd say, complex political system. But, um, you know, even though it's not a democracy and there's sort of centralized power, there is a lot of authority that, you know, local leaders sometimes have. Um, and so the person who runs Xinjiang has a lot of power and it's, it's his problem too. Um, but no, it's entirely a government thing. It has very little to do with, um, you know, Han Chinese people as a whole. Yeah, and in terms of the critics, I mean, I, I mean, there's just, I mean, it's not really, it doesn't really make a lot of sense. Like there's a lot of reporting and it's not like, you know, from random websites. Like the New York Times was the, was the one who sort of really um, sort of captured this first bout of leaked documents that were called the Xinjiang Papers. And then there was Xinjiang Cables that they also released. And this is being reported in like all major American news outlets. And, you know, the BBC has done most of the work for um, in catalyzing sort of been sterilized or tortured and raped in these camps. So it's it's pretty reputable. And, you know, they are, it is right that there's not a lot of visual information, but that's just because the Chinese government doesn't let journalists in. I mean, if you listen, if you listen to journalist accounts of like going into the region, the way they like get images is they like have their phone like hidden on their body taking video. Then in order to get to get the, the video um, onto a USB, they go to the bathroom and like pull something out of their like shoe to transfer the file into the USB. Then they take the USB and like stick it back in their shoe. Then they go leave the checkpoints and their phones are and everything off their phones are deleted, but they still have the thing on the USB. So the point being that like, it's not easy to get information, but the information we have is sort of reported by very trusted journalistic sources. Um, so I don't really think that criticism is valid. Um, and then in terms of the last thing you mentioned um, about, you know, just sort of being the a weapon weaponization of, of like, I don't know, a moral weaponization of the US government to sort of criticize China. I, I know that I genuinely care about this. And I know that like the people I talk to and I work with genuinely care about it. And all the, you know, Uyghur Americans who I work with, like they care about their families who are in concentration camps. And like, you know, I'm sure that there are some people who are sort of politically motivated and don't actually care. But, you know, by and large, this is about human rights. It's about international norms, the Chinese government has signed on to that they're you know, participatories of certain conventions that sort of codify rules about not, you know, trying to wipe out a population of your own people. So like, I don't, I don't put too much weight in, in those sorts of. Yeah. You know, and if anything, there's an incentive for the U S government specifically not to, if they're 
to criticize the Chinese if there's any incentive, right? I mean, China is our largest trading partner. And even if it, we do end up being adversarial, it's, it, it tends to be about more geopolitical things like um, the South China Sea and Taiwan and, you know, disputes between them and India or Japan. And, you know, governments tend to act in their interests. And it's not exactly in the U.S. interest to, you know, advocate for the Uyghurs. It's in the human interest and in, you know, anyone who cares about making sure that the kind of thing like the Holocaust or the Rwanda genocide don't happen again, you know, before our very eyes. I mean, I do think that there's like some U.S. interest in advocating for it. Like, just because like, you know, if you're going to try to marshal the American people around like competing with China, which is what Joe Biden's trying to do, right? Like, it is important to like, you want to sort of paint yourself as like the moral country or like a lot of the sort of dialogue is about like, you know, two different systems. And I mean, this is not, this is not the Cold War all over again, but there's like, you know, something similar happened during the Cold War. Like Americans wanted to sort of paint their system as moral and paint the other system they're fighting against as immoral to sort of galvanize people to be committed to a geopolitical conflict, which doesn't normally really make sense to people, right? Like why do the American people care about something very far away? They don't. Um, so I do think there are incentives. I just don't think that it's that relevant. And like, you know, from, from all the work I've done, I've, I've, you know, I've had really the honor to like meet Congress people, meet their staffers. And like, these people don't seem to me to be like, you know, just like, how do I weaponize this cause to like initiate regime change in China? They're like, we really care about this. This is like terrible. And like, you know, brings tears to my eyes. And like, I want to do something to help. Like, this is about the CCP and their government, but it's also to some extent, there is some American corporate complicity in all of this, right? I mean, famously, the Disney was criticized for um, thanking the officials in Xinjiang um, for filming in the Mulan movie in China, and Nike and H&M were um, issued statements against their the use of their cotton, and which was produced in that province, and obviously they, they faced boycotts and backlash. And in many of these cases, these companies are very hesitant to not um, and to criticize what's going on there and to not engage in activity that goes in between, like such as the cameras that are like in facial identification, which were, you know, say created for even the Uyghur populations, but maybe are used in other situations, such as facial recognition technology on your iPhone or in many other places. So my question is like, to what extent are our corporations and to a lesser extent, all of us complicit in allowing this sort of activity to occur, even if it's halfway across the globe. Yeah, it's pretty bad. <laughs> um, I, the statistic is that 80% of all cotton in China comes from Xinjiang. Um, and most of the cotton that we use comes from China. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, I've written, I've written articles about like, you know, boycotting clothing and it's kind of really hard to write just because like you run through the list of all the companies that you probably, if you wanted to be safe, shouldn't touch. And it's like most companies that like people know. So <laughs> it's really extensive and quite bad. Um, and, you know, the high profile ones have been, you know, H&M and Zara and they're sort of, you know, H&M, there was a lot of backlash against H&M in China because they sort of said something, whereas Zara, um, you know, they act, they used, Zara used to have a statement about forced labor on their website and the Chinese government told them to take it down and they took it down. So, you know, not all companies are the same and some have different exposure than others. And some are, you know, much more care more or less and Zara seems to care a lot less um, than other companies. Um, and then it's terrible in the technology sector too. So you mentioned facial recognition software. Um, there's been stuff with computer chips. There's stuff in, um, there's a great New York Times article about solar panels, um, which is kind of a, a bummer. <laughs> um, 
but yeah, there's, there's serious exposure to a lot of different supply chains and technology and clothing are, are the really prominent ones. Um, also, you know, tomato paste, a lot of tomatoes come from Xinjiang. Um, so yeah, and the thing to do about it is, you know, there's legislation to pass. So, you know, the United States, there's this bill that was passed by the House and then didn't get passed by the Senate. It's called the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act. And basically, you know, under US law, it's illegal to bring in products that are made with forced labor. It's under international law too. The problem is that like, you just don't check and it's hard to check. And the only situation where it would be enforced is if you know, like have de definitely know that something has been made with forced labor. And, you know, realistically that doesn't really happen. And it's sort of under the jurisdiction of customs and border protection. So there's this, this bill would sort of create what's called a rebuttable presumption that anything that comes from Xinjiang um, has been made with forced labor and it's up to the companies to prove that it hasn't in order to bring those products into the US. Um, and that would be a big deal. That would, you know, really decrease our exposure to these sort of supply chains that are tainted by forced labor. Um, and you know, it's a big deal because the American business community really doesn't like the bill and <laughs> has lobbied pretty extensively against it. So, you know, it's weird. Like, you know, it was passed by the House, it was introduced by bipartisanly. Marco Rubio is like the big sponsor of it. Um, but US Chamber of Commerce really doesn't like it. Apple's lobbied against it. Nike's lobbied against it. Coca-Cola's lobbied against it. So that's definitely a big thing we can do and we should do. Um, I don't think it's very realistic to, you know, advocate for individuals to boycott. Seems unlikely and kind of difficult. Um, and it's always, it's always a failure, a failure to transform sort of political problems into like individual ethical movements. It's not really- Yeah, well, I know a lot of people do try and, you know, make change or create action through like social media activism and trying to like spread awareness, you know, via different platforms like Instagram and Twitter and making like different infographics to try and spread awareness of the cause. But would you say that this social media activism is really effective at all in combating the issue? Is it like, or is it even doing its job of trying to, you know, spread more information and increase awareness? Or is it really not that effective? Yeah, I mean, this is something I struggle with a lot. Like, you know, at, at the beginning of this whole activism journey, I guess you'd call it, like, I was really into writing articles. Like, I thought that was a really big deal. Like, I thought if you just, like, you know, wrote enough articles and people would care. Like, people don't read that many articles. And, like, you know, the people who are going to read the articles are going to be people who already care already. So that, does, that doesn't, I didn't really, I decided it doesn't really do much. And then, like, social media, like, you can create a following. Like, I don't know, we have, like, 1,500 followers on Twitter. But, like, you know, it's mostly, like, Uyghur people or like people are interested in China and like already care. And I guess if we worked really hard, we could slowly grow and grow our following. Um, but there's not much persuasion that's happening there, right? Um, and so I guess my vision is sort of much more political. I think it's about, you know, lobbying your government, calling on your representatives. And that's the beautiful thing about living in a democracy. We can do that. Um, and we do do that. Um, and sort of getting the US government to issue things and to sort of implement laws and sort of lead the way. Um, and then other governments will follow in suit. Um, and, you know, the one thing China really fears is multilateralism um, and sort of an alignment of um, international coalitions. So I think, I think, you know, these, I guess these things all work together. You know, you write articles, you, you sort of do things on social media and politicians see that people care and that makes them more receptive to take action. Um, yeah, I mean, the thing that, that's interesting that people tried to do was sort of, you know, engage in acts of persuasion to the Chinese people. Um, and that was sort of briefly possible in stints when certain social media apps weren't taken down. So there was a whole deal with like Clubhouse, this, this very cool app um, that, you know, 
was briefly available in China. And, you know, there were like genuine conversations that were happening between like, you know, Uyghur activists in America and like, you know, people in China. They were talking about these issues and like, what is it like to live there? And like, you know, that seems like to me to be, that would be the very powerful thing if you want to talk about social media that could like make a difference. But that's not really an option because, you know, that clubhouse was taken down in China pretty quickly and there isn't really an avenue for communication. Um, so I guess I think social media is a piece of the puzzle, but, you know, it's not an, it's not an end in and of itself. Like it has to, I guess, be directed towards government action. Just because like you can, you can compare it to like social media was like the decisive factor in like a lot of the Arab spring, right? Like protests were organized in, you know, Egypt using social media and Tunisia using social media. And like that, that was basically like, that was where all the power was held. Whereas that's not an option. And yeah, it's not an option here. So. So what do you say to people who are like, yeah, Okay, we, we read about what the Uyghurs happening. It's terrible, right? But the fact is China is the number two and by some metrics, number one economy in the world. And when we deal with foreign policy um, with them, we're going to have to make trade-offs, right? Like we're not going to get, you know, curtailing aggressions in the South China Sea and Taiwan, you know, and patent protection and fair trade rights. And on top of that, prevent um, you know, protect human rights of the Uyghur population, something that for whatever reason, and you can maybe elaborate in your answer, China seems to really care a lot about, right? Like this isn't something that they will bend easily on. At least it appears. Maybe, maybe I'm wrong about that. So what do you say to those people that like, yeah, human rights is great, but this is, we're living in the real world. And sometimes, you know, human rights ends up falling to the bottom of the list. And how do you try to persuade those people that this is actually a hill worth dying on and that we shouldn't allow mass sterilization and ethnic genocide to occur? I think the better issue, like when people talk about trade-offs, I think the, like the one they usually talk about is like climate change, right? Like we need to co cooperate with China on climate change and like, you know, climate change is the potential to, you know, kill hundreds of millions of people, displace even more and, you know, cause mass starvation and all these things. Um, but I don't know, the way I think about it is like, you know, China has interests in like, not their, like mitigating climate change too. I mean, like, I think 10 of the most exposed cities to climate change, like in terms of coastal flooding are like all in China. Like just imagine their entire coast and like they're highly exposed and like it's a very dense population. So like aridity and like, <clears throat> and famine will not go over well there. Um, so I guess I, I think sometimes people overrate the degree to which it's not in other countries, self-interest also work on these problems. Like, you know, China's IP problems, um, eventually it's gonna come back to bite them, right? Like if American companies are like, okay, we've had it, like we're done with, you know, you stealing our intellectual property and not giving us sort of fair treatment in your courts then capital is gonna exit the country. And like, that comes back to bite you too. So I think people underrate the degree to which like it's in Chinese government's interest to like cooperate on a lot of these different issues, whether it's, you know, climate change, intellectual property, artificial intelligence and cybersecurity um, and yeah, I mean, I guess I, I, maybe, maybe it really is the case that like, you know, you can only do a, a limited number of things and you want to save your asks, but I don't know. I, I guess I just think that human rights is very important and should be on that list of things that you, you push for. And I, I think it's overstated the degree to which it's not in Ch the Chinese government's interest to cooperate on other things. Yeah. Well, I don't think anyone's going to begrudge you for, you know, wanting to prevent a genocide. So, yeah, I mean like the Chinese government, like, you know, before the Biden administration 
sort of rejoin Paris and sort of convene that whole council on climate change. Like they had set their own targets, you know, entirely independently of the US. Like Trump was president, like the US ostensibly like, didn't give a crap about climate change anymore for four years. Like they have interests in these things too. So I just, I do think that we overrate the degree to which they yeah, are. Here's, here's my question, which I guess we kind of implicitly uh, skipped by, but why is China doing this in the first place? Like, why did they, why did they suddenly decide to crack down on, uh, you know, Xinjiang? And why do they not appear to budge on it when so many countries are, you know, harshly condemning them? And it does appear that they're going to have to face some sort of consequences for their actions, at least in some ways. Like, why do they have to, to do this, right? They're, they're a big company. They're a big country. They have a lot of power. They have a lot of wealth. And they have a lot of control, right? What, what makes them determined to make sure that they're no more, you know, Uyghur culture? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's fundamentally just like a really terrible response to like isolated bouts of terrorism. Um, and then, you know, coupled with sort of financial motives. So Xinjiang is sort of like this gateway point into the rest of Asia. Um, and it's pretty pivotal for the Belt and Road Initiative, which is sort of China's big infrastructure, global infrastructure spending project. Um, and so, you know, they have very firm interests in security in the region. Um, and, you know, also there are sort of sex part, you know, the Uyghur community is like, in some ways, you know, there are different, you know, different people with different ideological beliefs, like any community. So, you know, a lot of people are just like sort of focused on human rights abuses and like stop putting us in camps. Other people are sort of more independence oriented and, you know, Xinjiang, the region used to be, Xinjiang means new frontier. Um, it wasn't always called that, right? So a lot of Uyghurs call it East Turkestan. And there was a point where they had a lot more regional autonomy. There was a point where it wasn't, you know, part of China. Um, and so the Chinese government certainly fears that. Um, and you only need to look to like, you know, Hong Kong and Taiwan and other, other places where they're sort of creeping um, upon their sort of territorial and sort of political autonomy. So I would say that the interests are sort of uh, a ridiculous, uh, you know, an unjustified response to terrorism, financial incentives, and sort of fears of, um, you know, separatist movements. Um, why they're doing this? I mean, I fundamentally, I, I mean, the thing I always think about is like, they're just digging, a, they're just digging their own hole. Like it's, you know, you crack down on a population and they get angry or they get upset and like, you don't, you don't improve relations. You don't improve, you know, sort of ethnic dialogue and discussion between Uyghurs and Han Chinese people. Um, you're turning the international community against you. Um, and you're turning a lot of, you know, Uyghurs against you who might not have been, you know, I don't know, not might, not might have hated the Chinese government so much. Like, you know, like Uyghurs are Chinese too. Like they're Chinese citizens, like a lot of them, you know, have admired their country. A lot, most of them speak Chinese too. Like, you know, you're turning a whole population of people against you. Um, so, yeah, I think I think the the government has a lot of pride um, and won't really um, turn back on a certain course of action. Um, uh, but yeah, I think they should. <laughs> I think it's a bad call. I think they deserve it. Um, and more and more governments are going to sort of issue de genocide designations or sort of join this growing sort of multilateral coalition and. Yeah, so shifting gears a bit here, could you talk more about your organization and what you guys are doing to, you know, combat what's going on in China with Uyghurs and like in terms of activism and spreading awareness or what other types of things you guys are doing to combat this? 
Yeah, so I'd say we do sort of like three different things if I had to, you know, put it into little um, boxes. The first thing is sort of um, uh, sort of student-oriented activism. So we have a lot of these different like campus chapters. Um, so I think we have like, you know, at 15 different campuses right now, you know, we have like little, we have like smaller little groups. And basically at the, on these campuses, the, you know, the J Jewish Movement for Uyghur Freedom chapters, you know, they organize events, bring in speakers, um, try to write op-eds in their papers. Um, and try to meet with their own local representatives to raise this issue. Um, and that's really been pretty cool and successful so far. So that's sort of one sort of bucket. Um, the other thing we do is we try to reach out to different Jewish communities and get them to sort of do the same sort of thing, you know, run events, bring in speakers, advocate to their communities. And that sort of looks a little bit different because, you know, there are very large Jewish organizations that sort of span the whole country. So, you know, um, the ADL or the AJRC or the Reform Action Committee. Like there's a lot of different Jewish organizations that we've worked with. We've worked with HIAS, which is pretty cool, which is the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society, which was this organization that was responsible for bringing Jews over to America during World War II. Um, we worked with um, Jewish World Watch, which was, which was started during the genocide in Darfur. Um, so yeah, we've worked with a lot of other different Jewish organizations. So that's sort of the second thing we do. So you know, campuses, Jewish communities and organizations. And the third thing we sort of focus on is helping individual Uyghurs. So, you know, we try the best we can to help them. If they're writing something, they want to write an article. If they're engaging in advocacy on behalf of a family member or a sibling, um, you know, this is the thing that just came up. There was this girl who in Virginia who, you know, wants to go to college um, and she got into a great school, um, Virginia Tech, um, but, you know, she doesn't have a lot of money. She's a refugee, but because Uyghurs don't officially have asylum status in the U.S., um, she's not like a, a, eligible for this pool of money that's only for like asylum seekers. So, um, we sort of tried to elevate her case um, and help her meet with the representatives and that's sort of ongoing um, and different things like that. Um, <clears throat> so those are say the, the, sort of the three main things we do. You know, What prompted you to found this organization? Like what was your motivation? Yeah, so like, you know, I'm like a Jew. <laughs> so like I'd always heard about like all this, all the Holocaust stuff growing up and, you know, really affected me in a serious way. Like, you know, I've been to Poland, like, I've done I've done those things and I I think I saw a video I think it was a bit was one of the very few videos that sort of come out of Xinjiang is this video of um, Uyghurs being loaded onto trains like blindfolded um and it just really freaked me out and I was like you know when I was in Poland like I sat in a cattle car and like it was like very traumatizing and like scary like this feels very holocausty and like you know I was always taught like never again all that stuff and it seems like this is kind of happening again so probably really should do something and I, the thought that goes through my mind is like you know i think that everyone in the jewish community if the holocaust was like actually happening right now they probably wouldn't like you know be getting computer science jobs or like whatever jobs that they're getting you, they wouldn't be doing sort of normal things that people do in their lives now um so you know if it's happening to another community i've seen a lot of people on social media and in the uh, news as well, like referring to the genocide as like the modern day Holocaust. But I've also seen a lot of controversy around that statement of people who are saying that you shouldn't really compare the two, either because the Holocaust was like a much greater scope, more people were affected, or because, you know, a genocide does not need to be considered important uh, just to, you know, compare it to something like that. Like you don't have to compare it to the Holocaust in order to give it relevancy and to make people care about it. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, 
I think specifically Jews are very sensitive um, to having things compared to the Holocaust. So this is something I'm careful about. Like, I don't think that, like, I think the Holocaust is worse than what's happening right now. Like, you know, for what, the reason this is a genocide is the, the thing that, you know, has the best evidence is sort of these mass sterilizations of women and the forced transfers of children. But there's not like, you know, there's no gas chambers here. There's no, you know, people being shot in the back of the head and thrown in pits. Um, and that is worse. <laughs> so if it, if it means anything, and I, I don't think it's that important. Like, I don't think that suffering needs to be compared. And I don't think that, you know, even Jewish suffering throughout history is not all the same. And yet, you know, in Jewish circles, we routinely, you know, connect pogroms in 1912 to the Holocaust to, you know, violence against Jewish communities in the 13th century during the Crusades. I, I might've got the century wrong there, but the point is like Jewish yeah, suffering- It happened in a lot of centuries. So Jewish suffering is not consistent, yet we recognize that sort of the principles of hatred are consistent. And so too, I don't think that, you know, any genocide will ever be exactly the same. That would kind of defeat the point of like having an international structure meant to prevent it if you were looking for like the exact same thing to be repeated. Like that's not the way history works. Like things are never exactly repeated. Like this is the 21st century. China is a very technologically advanced country. Um, they have mass surveillance systems. Like that's different than, you know, 70 years ago. So why would you expect things to be the same? What can the individual do? I know you don't want to portray this as a, some sort of lifestyle thing, right? That we, you know, want to stop buying clothes and, you know, knit our own yarn and all hippy dippy style. But to some extent, each person does wield some sort of political leverage, um, whether as unit or in their family or in their larger community. And every person also, you know, no one wants to hear about, you know, such a terrible thing that's happening in our world and also be told that, you know, there's nothing we can do that, you know, the event is preordained. So what, what is the advice that you give out? What do you ask people, you know, who are interested and maybe want to do something, whether part-time or just a little contribution they can make? What would you, what would you ask? Yeah. Um, I mean, if you want to do something, stuff more seriously then you know, I'm assuming some people listening to this are going to go to college, you know, maybe join an organization, maybe like start, start doing advocacy, but on a smaller level, I, I really do think it's impactful to, you know, contact your representatives. Um, it's not that hard to do. And you'll be surprised sometimes they really do answer you. And, you know, you say, you know, I'm a high school kid and I care about this. And people will be like, wow, that's kind of crazy. Like, that's pretty cool. Like, I didn't know high school kids like cared about things like that. And I think that's powerful. And it's also pretty cool to be part of democracy. Um, that's one reflection I've sort of had is like, you know, reaching out to my representatives or other representatives and like actually having them respond to you and say like, Hey, like we care about what you think. And like, here, I'll meet with you. Um, that's pretty cool. And it's pretty like impactful experience to have that sort of, you know, real political power because, you know, our government represents us. So I, I, I do think that that is the primary thing people should do. Um, and, you know, if a lot of people do it, it makes a difference. It, it is a difficult, like, it is definitely like, a difficult issue and part of the reason that I think people sort of say you know this is bad but like I don't really care is because it's far away and like there isn't as much you can do about it as you can do about something domestic but that doesn't mean that you shouldn't try yeah great um so thank you Jonah for talking with us it's been a, a great conversation um everyone listening it'd be great if you guys could you know rate us share the podcast or simply just subscribe um and everyone have a great day